Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Travelcast, episode 337. The Travelcast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, it's the closing week of H.P. Lovecraft Month here on the Drabblecast. My, how time flies when you keep talking in terms of incalculable eons. This week, enough waiting, though. The Elder Gods Rise, in a perfect blend of my two absolute favorite genres, Southern Gothic and Post-Apocalyptic. But first, let's hit a hundred-word story. This week's hundred-word travel story is called The Summoning, and we pulled it from the massive archives of fan-written travels we've got in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org. This one's from last year and comes to us from one of our favorite forum members, Phineas QP. Here goes. I listened with mounting horror unable to intervene as she spoke the dreadful syllables I had so feared. Yeah, Thursday's perfect, Mom. The fear swelled to horror, and my blood began to chill. It'll be so good to see both of you. My very sanity grew thin and weak, straining under the weight of those words, alien sounds they were that made no earthly sense. Oh, nonsense. Jim doesn't care. You two stay as long as you like. Give Dad my love. I'll see you both in two days. No. The mad fool had summoned the grating old ones. Which side will you be on when shit hits the fan and Mommy and Daddy Cthulhu come back from out of town and find the place wrecked, us kids with our friends out drinking Mike's hard raspberry by the pool? Will you be a supplicant, point the finger, or go down with dignity, downing the last bit of that noxious 4% alcohol fruit-flavored libation and get your ass handed to you and sentenced to oblivion? 
This week we bring you an original Drabblecast commission story by one of our favorite authors, Desmond Warzel, called The Only Game in Town. Desmond Warzel is the author of some two dozen short stories in the science fiction, fantasy, and horror genres. They can be found in a variety of periodicals, including Redstone Science Fiction, Abyss and Apex, Shroud, and here on the Drabblecast, with a two-part special we ran this time last year entitled The Blue Celeb. In his spare time, he roots for the Cleveland Indians or engages in other equally futile pursuits. Everything's an equally futile pursuit, Desmond. Thank you for the gentle reminder. And on that note, and without further ado, we bring you The Only Game in Town by Desmond Warzel. saw Rich Hartzell locking up his cabin. His car was stuffed to the roof with cardboard boxes and black trash bags. Only the driver's seat was empty. He heard my footsteps in the gravel and turned. Out for a stroll? Uh, down to Latshaw's. Place has really gone to seed since the old man died last year. Better off without him. I ignored this. He'd have never made it this long. He'd been on oxygen for years. Figures he'd think he was too good to breathe the same air as everyone else. You didn't know? I don't talk to any Latshaws. Never have. I always hated that hillbilly crap. One slight, one affront, and the families never speak again. Why people in a perfectly civilized state like Pennsylvania insisted on behaving like toothless yokels and tar paper shacks in Mississippi, I'd never understood. Taking a ride? I asked. Arkansas, said Hartzell. My mother's side of the family's from there. Unless that car runs on fusion, I wouldn't count on making it. That's what siphons are for. Hell, even if I don't get there, it beats sitting around. Anyway, 
He trailed off, glancing up at the sky. It had been overcast for three months, and the clouds loomed lower and lower every day. Anyway, I just... I want to see the sun again. I didn't think he stood a chance, but I wished him well and shook his hand. Thanks, Bobby, he said. You take care of yourself. He spoke with uncharacteristic warmth, but I still thought I'd be happier with him gone. He started his car, backed out, the driveway's ruts jostling the precarious stacks of boxes in the passenger seat. As an afterthought, he stopped in the middle of the road and rolled down his window. Eh, someone came looking for you, Bobby. You're kidding. Yeah, guy in a jeep. I pointed him to your place, probably still there. I didn't hear him leave. Thanks, I guess. Hartzell drove off, his tires kicking up dust that lingered after the passing. With his departure, I'd become the sole resident of Maple Hollow Road. In fact, if not for the mysterious visitor apparently awaiting my arrival, I'd have guessed I was the only person left in Pennsylvania. I cut through the woods, separating my cabin from Hartzell's. On closer approach, I saw that there was indeed a second vehicle parked next to my truck, but the heavy foliage and oppressive shadows precluded a more detailed glimpse. I wished I'd brought the revolver with me. Whoever this might be, I suspected it wasn't the Red Cross at this late date. Forcing my way through the brush, I emerged into the overgrown clearing that passed for my front yard. I'd stepped back in time. In the driveway was a familiar 86 Jeep Wagoneer, black, a ratty sticker in the window reading, Ted Kennedy's car killed more people than my guns. And reclining in the lower tailgate, a man I'd seen last on the 1st of May, 1995, the day I'd declared my withdrawal from Washington and Jefferson College for personal reasons, shortly after being notified by said college of my expulsion for academic insufficiency. It was Nick Penrod. At closer range, the passage of time became more evident. He'd aged in subtle ways, as we all do, but the pertinent details, the flannel shirt over the threadbare Leonard Skinnerd shirt, the mane of curly black hair, a la Queen's Brian May or Guns N' Roses slash, spilling out from under a red bandana, the cigarette wrapped in a self-satisfied smirk, all were as I remembered them. This is what an acid flashback must be like, I said. Penrod hopped off the tailgate. Red plastic gas cans filled the back of the wagoneer. Where you been, Smith? I thought it'd take more than the collapse of civilization to get you out of your house. Next time, call first. The phones, of course, no longer worked. It's been 19 years. I figured I'd better check up on you. Well, aside from a little tennis elbow, I suppose I'm fine. All right then, see you in 2033. Make sure you bring that 20 you owe me. There was no tension here. This was a contest to see who'd crack up first. We ended up in a tie, both busting out laughing simultaneously. A hug was shared with much slapping of backs. What have you been up to? I asked. Well, the usual. I graduated, went to law school, been practicing down in Virginia. <laughs> well, you better keep practicing. You had the same Jeep for two decades. How successful could you be? 
<laughs> well, my other car's a sob. I just thought you'd get a kick out of seeing the old gal again. Successful. Hell, I've been arguing before the Supreme Court. Did you win? Like it matters now. What about you? What college do you end up at? Eh, none. I figured I was better off writing passable science fiction instead of mediocre scholarship. I have all your books, said Penrod. They're good. No joke. My publisher disagreed. They cut me during the most recent purge. Yeah, but you got the last laugh. You're still alive, ain't you? Well, I was thinking about retiring anyway. Life in the mid-list is no life at all. You should have been writing bestsellers. Yeah, good idea. Wish I'd tried it. How famous do you think you'd get with a name like Bob Smith? A pseudonym might have got you more attention. <laughs> Shit, like what? I don't know, Bob Obama? Nah, no need, I said. As of three months ago, I'm America's most famous living author. Bob, tell me how it went down up here. Hoping to wring a few last pennies from my latest book before my now ex-publisher tossed it down the memory hole, I'd organized a series of signings starting in Chicago, working my way east towards home. Pure self-indulgence, I'd surely spend more on gas than I'd realize in extra royalties. It was the first of June, a Sunday. I'd hit Cleveland that afternoon and Youngstown in the evening, after which I'd allowed a couple of lingering fans the treat at taking their favorite science fiction writer to the nearest bar. Thus, it was after midnight when I crossed into Pennsylvania on a back road, the interstates having nothing to offer me but speeding tickets. Just outside Hermitage, my drooping eyelids got the best of me, and I pulled off, figuring to tackle the latest forty miles after a few hours sleep. It was daylight when the earthquakes came, and I was nudged gently awake by my truck's roof, and by its dashboard, and by its passenger door. It felt like God had rolled four sixes and I was the only die left in the Yahtzee Cup. I switched on the radio. Both bands were static from one end to the other. The phone was out too. On the horizon, clouds began rolling in at comical speed, like a silent movie playing at the wrong frame rate. It was a blur after that. I found myself pulling into my driveway, but retained only a vague recollection of my route. At some point, the quakes had stopped. Everything was out at my place, electricity, phone, cable. It was the same with Hartzell. I considered going into town, but he advised against it, saying that things were pretty bad there. Actually, they were fine with no phones or TV, but when the welfare cards quit working, things got ugly fast, was how he charmingly put it. We agreed to hunker down in the woods until we knew what we were dealing with. And? And I'm still hunkered, I said. I don't know what happened to everyone, but something did, because I hadn't seen a soul or heard a car since. You're taking it in stride, I must say. Hell, all I ever wanted was to be left alone. That explains the road with no signs and the driveway with no mailbox. Eh, I guess I got my wish. How do you live out here, Bob? Hunting, fishing, mostly fishing. <laughs> Why, because you shoot like a blind man with both index fingers missing? 
That, and because nightcrawlers are an unlimited supply around here. Ammunition, I suspect, no longer is. Well, what do you hunt with? My dad's old revolver, a Colt 38 Detective Special. With a two-inch barrel, you can't hit the broad side of a barn with that thing. Why would I shoot a barn? <laughs> the fishing here must be really good. Come find out for yourself, if you don't have any other appointments today. People, back when there were some, would ask me why I'd sold my parents' old house and moved into the cabin year-round. Explaining was difficult. One either appreciates the privilege of having the Allegheny River thirty feet from one's back porch, or one doesn't. I broke out two fishing rods and a container of night crawlers, and Penrod and I made our way down the hill to the river bank. What's biting these days? he asked. Most of the smallmouth bass. You're not catching any bass with night crawlers. Says you, I've been pulling bass out of here like Art Carney pulling presents out of Santa's bag on the Twilight Zone. Now, for bass, you want to use a spinner or a plug or a hair jig. I didn't understand anything in that sentence. We baited our hooks and I cast my line. Penrod moved a little way upstream and followed suit. After a few minutes' silence, he gave me a sideways glance and asked if there were catfish around. Yeah, plenty. I've been throwing them back. How come? Damnedest thing. I used to eat catfish by the pound, but lately even looking at them turns my stomach. Catch them if you want, but you clean them and you eat them. Maybe I'll try my look around the bend over there. Wouldn't want you to faint. I wouldn't go down there, I said. The warning sprang to my lips with unusual swiftness, as if the words had bypassed my conscious mind entirely. Penrod took a contemplative drag on his cigarette. Why not? No fish down there. Plus that brush is so thorny it'll cut the pants right off you. I'll give it a shot anyway. Dude, I snapped. I told you it's pointless. You don't believe me? Penrod held up a placating hand. No problem, man. It's your river. Who pissed in your Wheaties anyway? It sure was a lousy way to treat a friend I hadn't seen in 19 years. I couldn't believe I'd said it. Sorry. Forgotten? I knew what would make up for it. Can I offer you a beer? Warm? He said skeptically. Hardly. I walked along the bank until I glimpsed a length of fishing line tied to a tree leading away through the grass to the river bank. I hauled on it, and a six-pack of Pabst Blue Ribbon ascended from the depths. I've been saving this for a special occasion. It's not exactly ice cold, but you won't find colder. That's pretty ingenious, said Penrod, accepting the proffered can. Hey, you thought of it. Remember the great Susquehanna River expedition in 1993? <laughs> Barely. He cracked open the beer, took a long, appreciative swig. I guess those who forget the Pabst are doomed to repeat it. For as long as I could remember, I'd said a prayer every night without giving it much thought. Now, with Penrod sacked out on the love seat in the next room, I was self-conscious, found myself mouthing the words rather than speaking them. I decided it still counted. 
Nick Penrod and I had met an intro to philosophy, a wash in youthful arrogance. We'd considered ourselves grand intellectuals, and we'd recognized in the other a kindred spirit. Many weeknights had been misspent in beer-fueled debates about politics, literature, music, anything but religion. Penrod, the atheist, and I, the Catholic, had declared it out of bounds, lest feelings be hurt. But it only took one drink too many to breach that barrier. How can a benevolent God allow so much suffering? Penrod had demanded out of the blue one evening. I had taken up the gauntlet. You lose the argument at benevolent. That's the problem with you atheists. You won't read any theology, so you end up arguing against what you learned back in Sunday school. My aunt's one of those church people. She's always telling me God loves everyone. Read your Bible, schmuck. God's bumping people off page four. You're saying God doesn't love everybody. I don't see how an intelligent person could think so. You're saying my aunt ain't intelligent. Weren't you saying that? What's your point? My point is, tell your aunt to ask a Hittite if God loves everybody. If she can find one, that is. There had been a brief but quiet interlude while Penrod formulated his response. I hadn't been able to resist breaking the silence. Of course, Jesus loves everybody, but that's not what you asked. I ducked as an empty beer can flung in jests rather than anger sailed past my head. That makes even less sense. Doesn't need to make sense. God's game, God's rules. You don't have to like it, but it's the only game in town. I had thought that last bit rather profound, considering its impromptu nature. Penrod had disagreed. Put it on a bumper sticker, Thomas Aquinas. I'd decided to steer the conversation elsewhere. It hadn't taken much steering. Iron Maiden has a new album coming out this year, I'd said. Maiden? Without Bruce Dickinson? I'd rather listen to Judy Garland. I finished my Hail Mary and lay quietly, thinking about the words themselves for the first time in quite a while. Penrod's presence nearby didn't embarrass me as much as it made me aware of the peculiar nature of my faith, that my surviving the apparent end of humanity had neither obliterated nor intensified it. I'd been on autopilot for as long as I could remember. Rise and shine, Bob, said Penrod, far too cheerily. Oh, what time is it? No clue. My watch stopped last month. I find I'm no worse off for not knowing. Did you sleep in that bandana? Just admit your hairline's receding. What are your plans for this winter, Bob? Starved to death, I suppose. You have a better idea? Well, I still have my parents' old house down in Johnstown. I stocked the place up via some judicious looting. There's a generator, enough gas to last until spring. Then we can figure out what to do next. When? I asked. Well, we can leave right now. You don't have any other stragglers to collect? I've looked for a few friends. What did I have to lose? There's no women, no TV, no Burger King. Driving's the only pleasure I have left. There's plenty of gas around if you know how to get it. Did you find anyone? No, you're it. 
So what you say, Smith? Think about it. Electric lights to read by, a stove to cook on, a huge DVD collection. I have every Star Trek show, all 30 seasons. There are only 28 seasons. I have the animated series, too. Are there two bedrooms? Because if not, there better be an engagement ring in your pocket. The interior of Penrod's Wagoneer was as I'd seen it in 1995, except for 19 years additional cigarette smoke and a CD player in place of the old cassette deck. Penrod had the back door open, was fumbling amongst the floor's accumulation of empty potato chip bags. I had a map in here, for all the good it did me finding you. What's the nearest town, Oil City? Franklin, I said, but we're not going there. I found myself saying it with the same mysterious vehemence as when I'd stopped Penrod going downstream the previous day. I felt none of the anger that was reflected in my voice, but something compelled me to lash out. Dude, we can't avoid towns forever. You hidden long enough. I'm not saying it's pretty, but it's not as bad as you think. Forget it. We need to raid a supermarket anyway. I got nothing left to eat in here. Come on, suck it up. You need to see this. It's important. I wanted to say okay, but I couldn't force the word out. Finally, I managed to nod and we were on our way. By the time we reached the Franklin city limits and Bull Hill Road became third straight, my shirt was soaked with sweat and my breath was short. At first, my panic seemed unjustified. The omnipresent clouds blocked enough sunlight to lend the town a pre-dawn appearance, making the absence of people less eerie. But as we turned onto Liberty Street and made our way downtown, a closer inspection revealed much that was awry. As a writer, I'd always avoided the word surreal. Popular misuse had diluted it beyond utility. Here, though, I could think of no other adjective. Broken tree branches, busted windows, and fallen traffic signs might have been caused by the earthquakes. Overturned cars, uprooted park benches, and lamp posts bent double, pointed to some deliberate, monstrous agency. Feel better now? asked Penrod. I did, curiously enough. It was a relief to see it, even if the particular suggested that the disaster had been worse than I'd imagined. It's like this everywhere. The whole world, as far as I know. So what happened? Where'd the people go? Search me. I was cowering in my basement the whole time. Now, to the nearest grocery store. Fortunately, most of the shop and saves windows were broken, which meant the stench of decayed meat and produce was slightly more tolerable than if it had been bottled up in there. We loaded the jeep's back seat with chips, Cheetos, and warm Pepsi. It wasn't exactly tea at the Savoy, but we knew that stuff was safe to eat. Good to go, said Penrod. You want to stop at the library for some reading material? Hell of a long trip ahead. Why, because you still drive like an old lady? <laughs> no, because the roads are full of abandoned vehicles. I can't read in the car. Makes me throw up. And I'm the old lady? We crossed the 8th Street Bridge and left town, headed east on Route 322. 
We didn't set any land speed records. Too many fallen rocks, tree branches, and uprooted sections of guardrail littered the road. There were cars, too, parked haphazardly, many trailing thick black skid marks, as if they'd been shoved into their present positions. None of that mattered. Penrod negotiated the obstacle course masterfully to a soundtrack of Iron Maiden, Rush, and Pink Floyd, and for a few hours I wasn't forty years old anymore. We made the outskirts of Clarion, a forty-minute drive in saner times, in a couple of hours. From there we'd picked up PA-66 to Kittening, and then US-422 to Indiana, then PA-56 to Johnstown. By prior agreement, Clarion marked my turn to drive, but I'd found myself yawning for the past several minutes and begged off. Penrod agreed. <laughs> it's not like I trusted you to drive this thing anyway. When I woke up, the music had stopped. My head was pounding, my right arm trapped beneath me, nearly paralyzed. I forced my eyes open and was astonished to find us traveling in a straight line at a normal speed. We were on a divided highway, our path unobstructed. This was not reassuring. The abandoned cars were still present, but here they'd been tumbled into the shallow valley that ran along the center of the median. Alternate route? I asked, rubbing my eyes. Hey, you're up. Just in time, too. Alternate route? Yeah, you might say that. Where are we? Interstate 91, north of Hartford, Connecticut. I burst out laughing. <laughs> Baloney. How long was I asleep? The whole day, said Penrod. <laughs> yeah, what'd you do, drug me? Yeah. Give me a break. It wasn't that hard, actually. Back in the day, I remembered two Tylenol PM putting you on your ass for 36 hours or so. A route marker flashed by. We were indeed on I-91. Where are we going? Massachusetts. Hey, Penrod, I don't think I like this. I have to show you something. Don't try anything dumb like going for your gun. It's locked up in the back. He snorted, like you could hit me with that pea shooter. I leaned against the headrest. I had no idea what to try. Jumping out would kill me, resting the steering wheel away from Penrod would kill us both. We're getting close, said Penrod. I need you to think back for me, Bob. Remember that argument we had about religion? God's games? God's rules? No, the other one after that. Penrod had suggested that we really weren't so different after all, that he simply believed in one less god than I did. The reason you don't believe in many gods is the same reason I don't believe in yours. You're arguing with your Sunday school teacher again. Of course Christians believe in other gods, we just don't worship them. What are you talking about? The Bible's full of supernatural beings, many of whom were worshipped by various pagans, hence the commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, which would be superfluous if there weren't any. You're crazy. It had continued in that vein for some time, but that had been the gist of it. I remember. What about it? Just that I'm willing to admit when you're right and I'm wrong. 
We reached the top of a small rise, and Penrod brought the wagoneer to a stop in the middle of the highway. It was nearing dusk, as far as could be discerned through the clouds, but there was more than enough light to see what lay ahead of us. People. A river of people, flowing eastward, meandering from one horizon to the other with no beginning or end. They were of all races, and ranged in age from about five years old to about eighty or ninety. They were in various states of dress, and some were even naked. Yet this diversity was superficial. My eyes were easily fooled into thinking them a single organism, and it was only with difficulty that I could pick out particular individuals from the crowd. Whatever their outward differences, they were unified in their demeanor. They each bore the same blank expression, their eyes glazed over as if focusing on something only they could see. And though they weren't marching in step, they all walked with the same shuffling gait, as if guided by one mind for a single purpose. Most wore shoes, but some were barefoot. The fortunate among these merely had feet stained solid purple from bruises. Others fared worse, their feet barely recognizable, the flesh of their souls ground into hamburger or worn through to the bone. Despite these grievous injuries, they kept pace with the rest, leaving bloody footprints on the asphalt as they crossed in front of us. And they were quiet. No groans of pain, no wails of despair, no crying children, only the dull sound of shuffling feet and shallow breaths. All of these observations I made in the space of a second or two, for my attention was immediately arrested by an even more bizarre apparition. These poor souls did not make their pilgrimage unsupervised. Spaced perhaps every hundred feet along the route were, for lack of a better term, monsters. Wet, shiny, amorphous things ranging in size from that of a small car to that of a large panel truck. They kept pace with their charges like a drill sergeant marching with his platoon, pulling themselves along with prehensile tentacles that they extruded and retracted at will. Their unblinking eyes came and went, emerging through their skin, pausing, then retreating inward once more, like the lumps of wax in a lava lamp. They were hideous, and so very familiar. Such was my fascination with them that it was only when Penrod seized me from behind as one might restrain a belligerent drunk that I noticed I'd exited the jeep and crossed half the distance separating us from the unearthly tableau. Had I intended to plunge into that river of the damned and be swept away? Steady Bob, said Penrod. This is the test. You get past this and it's Miller time. You asked about our many gods argument. These are the gods? These? No, these are just servants. Errand boys, Bob. Shoggoths. Shoggoths? I asked hoarsely. Hey, I didn't name them. Penrod relinquished his embrace and instead grasped me firmly by the shoulders. But you've seen them before, haven't you, Bob? I remember now.
tell me. The beginning was as I'd said. I'd pulled over to nap on my way home from Youngstown and was woken by earthquakes. The clouds rolled in swiftly. It felt like the lid of a casket closing in my face. Then, looming on the horizon, I saw something. A hulking creature, vaguely manlike, its head lost among the clouds. I could make no finer details. My gaze kept sliding off it as if it were constructed around some alien geometry my mind couldn't comprehend. Its every footfall shook the ground beneath my tires. Suddenly, these creatures, these Shoggoths, appeared everywhere, swarming out from among the trees. Sheer terror took control of me, and I started the truck, mashed the accelerator, dodging the creatures as best I could, my stomach turning somersaults as their tentacles slapped against the windows in vain attempts to capture me. By the time I reached my cabin, the Shoggoth onslaught had thinned to nothing. Evidently, I'd succeeded in running the gauntlet. Though he'd felt the quakes, my neighbor Hartzell had witnessed neither the Shoggoths nor their titanic master. Without going into detail, I told him to arm himself while I retrieved my own revolver and a box of shells. We stood in the middle of Maple Hollow Road, figuring we were safer in the open than trapped in our homes. An hour passed in silence. Just as Hartzell started to insist on an explanation, there came the staccato sound of gravel being disturbed. A lone Shoggoth made its way up the road towards us. It was of middle size. Had it resolved itself into a sphere, its diameter would have been about nine feet. Hartzell bore a 12-gauge Winchester shotgun, which he emptied into the creature without hesitation firing five times in rapid succession, spraying its entire front with buckshot. Tiny holes appeared all over its hide as it absorbed the blasts, but the beast was unperturbed. While Hartzell reloaded, I fired all six rounds from my Colt, aiming for its constantly moving eyes without much luck. We kept on that way, alternating buckshot and bullets as we retreated, but the Shugoth kept coming. When we finally gave up and bolted for the trees, it pursued with surprising speed. When we hit the river, we made for the middle, where the current was swiftest. We figured that, with the water interrupting our scent trail, we might escape entirely if we could get downstream and out of sight. But swimming while keeping our weapons and ammunition above water was awkward business, and the Shoggoth was just too fast. We got as far as the first bend, made our stand by the waterlogged remains of a fallen tree. We emptied our guns at the Shugoth one final time, for it was nearly on top of us. Whether from cumulative damage or the last second piercing of some vital organ, the creature collapsed into a shapeless mass and was still. The river's current dragged the carcass until it became snagged on the dead tree's branches. Oily black fluid seeped from the Shoggoth's many wounds and flowed downstream. Dead fish floated to the surface wherever the foul slick lay on the waters. 
And then your brains papered over the more horrific portions of those memories. But your unconscious still knew, Bob. That's why you stopped me from fishing downstream. The remains of that Shugoth were still there. That giant thing I saw. A god, one of many. What are we to them? Less than nothing, Bob. If the world is their house, where the bacteria in the bathtub drain, beneath notice. I pointed at the procession of miserable humanity before us. Someone's noticed these people. Oh, these are just the stragglers. The rest have already been gathered. Fine, call us particularly useful bacteria. Useful. As servants, Bob. Sacrifices, food, whatever. But some have enough willpower to stay sane. That's why I came for you, Smith. I knew you were strong enough to be one of us. Us. We who brought about their return. I wrenched my shoulders out of Penrod's grasp and confronted him. How did you get mixed up in this? Oh, my arguments before the Supreme Court must have made an impression. Afterward, one of the justices contacted me privately. She introduced me to some interesting reading material and an enlightened group of people who'd been working for years to bring this about, Bob. And now, we've succeeded. For Christ's sakes, why? Well, because we're tired of absentee landlords, Bob. Suddenly, responding to some unseen command, the entire procession came to a halt. Feed in time, said Penrod. A pore opened in the hide of the nearest Shoggoth, expanded into a gaping hole the size of a basketball. From this orifice, the creature unceremoniously vomited a stream of thick, gray paste onto the asphalt. The deluge continued until there was a runny, foul-smelling heap of the stuff reaching waist-high. Up and down the line, the other Shoggoths had done the same. The people broke ranks and congregated around the piles, scooping up the gray vomitus with their hands, shoving it into their slack mouths. What's it to be, Smith? Are you coming with me? What if I don't? I wouldn't have the heart to shoot you. You'd have to take your chances with the Shugoths like your neighbor's doing right now. If he'd stuck around, he might have lived. The despair I felt was nearly elemental. It was the quintessence of despair. For a moment, there seemed no difference between my two options. Weren't all creatures marching inexorably toward oblivion, simply by living? In the end, even this darkest of philosophies couldn't eclipse my basic, selfish nature. I got back in the jeep. I knew you'd come around. Penrod started the engine. First, we're gonna meet a fellow named Nyarlathotep. Egyptian? I asked dully. <laughs> well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? Nice guy, though. Everyone who meets him likes him. He gave me this. Penrod removed his bandana for the first time since we'd reunited. 
Just above his forehead, a patch of hair had been seared away, leaving a perfect, bare circle the size of a fist. Inscribed on his scalp was a single character, a letter or ideogram in some unknown language. The sight of it unsettled me out of all proportion. Whatever word or idea it communicated surely had been a profanity. In response to the uncovering of Penrod's mark, two of the Shugoth's extruded numerous tentacles interrupted the meal, herding everyone off the road so we could pass. It's like any religion, really, said Penrod. It's all about the hierarchy. Couple of individual thinkers like you and me will be running the whole world a year from now. Our Father, who art in heaven, I began, not knowing why. Go ahead and get it out of your system, said Penrod. Hallowed be thy... The words wouldn't come. Yeah, while you have God on the line, tell him if he'd bothered to show up once in a while, this could have been avoided. Yea, though I walk through the valley. As soon as I'd said it, the remainder of the passage vanished from my memory. Psalm 23, verse 4. See, I've read my Bible after all, Bob. Opposition research and all. You're the modern-day Saul of Tarsus, even if I-91 isn't exactly the road to Damascus. Hail Mary! I barely got the two words out before that prayer and every other one I'd ever known were gone. Defeated, I slumped against the passenger window. Oh, don't nod off on me, said Penrod. We'd be there in a few hours, and you have a bunch of new prayers to learn. And some of these names, Bob, well, they're a bitch to pronounce. Stand with me, my darling, among the trembling pines. Feel his presence all around, fire in the sky. Oh, in this sushed and tranquil place, our souls become entwined. We feel his presence everywhere, all powerful divine. Fire in the blood, fire in the blood again. An author's note from Desmond Warzel, who sadly could not obtain a microphone from his stripped-down post-apocalyptic cabin down by the river in the desolate Pennsylvania woods. Desmond says, I first became aware of Lovecraft as a young lad by way of role-playing game magazines, in particular the late and lamented Dragon magazine. That periodical often carried advertisements for non-TRS games, TRS being the predecessor to Wizards of the Coast for you youngsters, and among ads for Middle-Earth role-playing, Powers and Perils, and Skyrealms of Jorun, I'd see ads for something called Call of Cthulhu from a company called Chaosium, which is still in business all these decades later. 
Eventually, I'd learned that, unlike most fantasy role-playing games, in Call of Cthulhu, you played an ordinary person rather than a hero, and that character worked to improve particular skills rather than advance in a specific class. But what really set the game apart was that each character had a finite sanity score, which could be subtracted from as a result of particularly horrific encounters. In other words, it was a foregone conclusion that your character would lose his mind if he remained in play long enough. I never tried the game, nor have I ever read much Lovecraft, certainly not as much as I ought to have probably read. In sitting down to write the Lovecraftian tale you just heard, and in spite of Norm's advice to the contrary a few episodes ago, I was forced to write what I know. I knew a few things. Chief among these was the aforementioned game mechanic, as a result of which I mainly associate Lovecraft with the mortal mind's gradual descent into insanity. I knew about Shugoths, amorphous, mossy, shape-shifting beings in some of Lovecraft's writing. I knew about Cthulhu and the other monstrous gods, even if I couldn't name them all or explain their relationships. And I knew about Nyarlathotep, he who assumes human form and controls men's minds, and acts as a liaison between the Great Old Ones and the human cults who serve them. Of course, if you were a subscriber to the Drabblecast B-Sides, you'd know that already too, because you'd have heard Norm read that story back in episode 11. Look at Desmond plugging our premium content feed Drabblecast B-Sides for us. Did I mention this guy was one of my favorites? Desmond goes on to say, I also decided to write who I know. Thus, into this bleak, meaningless, hellish landscape, I placed myself. The story's narrator, Bob Smith, is based loosely on me. Of course, the comparison goes astray rather quickly, as one immediately finds oneself altering details for the sake of the narrative. For instance, needless to say, I'm not the author of several novels, nor do I hunt or fish, and nor do I live in the woods in a cabin down by the river, contrary to what Norm might tell you. But I did flunk out of Washington and Jefferson College in 1995, a fact I now admit before the general public for the first time right here on this very podcast. The Jeep Wagoneer is real, though I don't know its actual year, and surely it's gone to its well-deserved rest by now. And the locations in the story are all real as well, except for the fictitious Maple Hollow Road. I suppose you could call the narrator a Mary Sue, and you'd be right. He's an admitted author by proxy who just happens to be one of the few people strong-willed enough to survive the invasion, and he somehow manages to take down a Shoggoth with mundane firearms. And yet, in the end, he still gives in. Such is the power of Lovecraft. The despair is so crushing, the end so inevitable, that even Mary Sue's don't stand a chance. True indeed, Desmond. Much like the collective sanity and very existence of Earth must eventually come to an end, we close out HPL Tribute Month this year with your fantastic story. Thanks for writing it for us. If you folks at home enjoyed our story this week, I've done enough beating of the tin cup this month. Just remember, we wouldn't ask for donations if we didn't need donations. Consider throwing some cash our way via the link staring you in the face at our website, www.drabblecast.org. We greatly appreciate it.
All right, let's close things out this month with our last 100-character story winner for the month of August, another one of my favorite writers, four-member unreliable narrator, with this one here. Local cops are looking for witnesses to a recent hit and run. I'll bet it was the same guy who threw a tricycle under my car. stuff. As you know, we have a 100-character story contest running each week in our forums at forums.dreblecast.org in the TwitFix section. You can post yours there. You might be next week's winner. Give it a shot. Follow the Drabblecast on Twitter at the Drabblecast. Alright folks, that's our show this week. Remember the Drabblecast is produced with a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. If you get a minute, write us a review on iTunes, or blog about us, tell a friend, spread the weird. Special thanks to our awesome episode artist this week, the one and only Drabblecast art director, Bo Kyer. Find his amazing work at Bo Kyer, that's K-A-I-E-R dot deviantart.com. It's pretty phenomenal. Our program this week was brought to you by managing editor Nathan Lee, our art director Bo Kyer, with additional help from Nikki Drayden, Tom Baker, Dave Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.